Thank you, Brian, Joseph, everybody. That was beautiful. I love the worship. I'm a little, my voice is a little scratchy after singing. Hey, I want to say hello to all the satellite people. Good morning. I ran across a fun fact this week. The word satellite is derived from the Etruscan satellis and originated in a military background. It meant bodyguard, satellis, bodyguard, or attendant. I thought that was pretty cool. You make a great body over there. Will you guard me? <laughs> hey, I have a friend here this morning. I, I should have asked Dan's permission, but I thought maybe my church family could welcome my dear friend Daniel. Daniel, would you stand up so you can all look at Daniel and say, good morning. Hello, Daniel. Good to have you here. <clears throat> it's a treat to have Daniel with me. He's got to spend some time with him this week. This morning, we continue our series in simple stories, daring truths, the parables of Jesus. We're in Luke chapter 13. I would like to... The parable isn't as long as the passage. We're going to read all of the nine verses that begin the chapter uh, but it'll kind of set the table a little bit for the story this morning. So as you look at your uh, New Testament, uh, follow along as I read from the English Standard Version. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Just uh, <clears throat> jump to mind. That's the solution. Um, a complete body manure. That would, that would help us. You didn't get that joke. 
Well, it just came to me. I didn't have a chance to polish it, but uh, I like that idea. The tree doesn't bear any fruit for three years, and the caretaker says, well, let me dig around it. I'll put manure on it. Manure. And I thought, well, since that tree and bearing fruit kind of represents us, maybe we need a good manure bath or something. Okay, worked a little bit better the second, second go around. Maybe uh, if I try again. I didn't plan on saying any of that, as you can tell. It would have been better if I'd planned. This parable really is, interu- is, is introduced with an interruption. Jesus has been teaching a large crowd, his disciples included. He's been talking about something already. And then this statement is made. It's, it's really kind of like, did you hear this? I mean, some of the crowd bring to the attention of all the fact that in Jerusalem, and we surmise it's in Jerusalem because when it says Pilate mixed their blood with their sacrifices, Well, the only time people sacrificed their own sacrifices, I mean, got their hands bloody, was when they offered their sacrifices at Passover. They actually got their hands, so to speak, dirty in their sacrifice for their sins. And it was on this occasion, since Pilate was in Jerusalem, that he ordered his men to slay these Galileans, and that's where Jesus, I think, is as he's teaching. This news has been heard. It has traveled. The grapevine took it to them. And Jesus has been teaching about what God is doing in their midst. And in fact, just before this, just before this, he chastised the people. I mean, that's when you know when a speaker is really uh, invested in what he's saying and he's more concerned about the people than kind of, you know, making friends and winning enemies. He, He chastised him. He says, you know what? You guys are hypocritical. He says, you're so good at interpreting the signs of the weather. You can tell when it's going to be good or bad weather, but you just... You don't have any sense at all when it comes to interpreting what God is doing right now. He says that in verse 76. And then in 77, he says, look, judge yourselves. Now, I know that there's these, like in in my New Testament, maybe it's true of yours, there's verses and there's inserts and breaks and so forth. But we know that Luke's, it just continued on. There's no reason to start something new here. And he says, he says, first of all, wise up. You know, use that good head on your shoulders that you use for all kinds of practical things and really put it to service in what's most important, and that is what God is doing right now in your midst. And he was, throughout the chapter, he's likening what he is doing, what his message is about, to what God wants to do in their midst. And into this situation, he says, judge for yourselves. He says, don't wait 
for your accuser to take you to court. Get on it right now. Quit putting it off. Quit being nonchalant about it or thinking it's going go to away, go away. Go and be reconciled. Well, we think that's, a, a, that's just some dandy ethical advice. And we all want to know how to do things better, how to get ahead in this world. That's not the overarching theme of what he's been talking about. He's talking about what God is doing. And when he says judge for yourselves, he's saying look at yourself and get right with God. Yes, he puts it in a form of, an, of a short story, something they could get. And right then, they're in, they interrupt. He said, did you hear what happened in Jerusalem during Passover? Pilate, have, all these Galileans, our countrymen, killed, mixed their blood with their sacrifices. What do you think they're saying? Did Jesus just not give them time to answer? To figure out why they brought that up? Or are they kind of like... That embarrassing uncle who always talks maybe out of turn or isn't following the, the thread, the train of thought. Hey, Jesus, uh, I don't like what you're saying. Here's an interesting fun fact. So tell us. No. <laughs> there was this incident in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say? He says, no. He says, you think they were... Do you think they were worse sinners than other Galileans, than you and me? Jesus was a Galilean. You see, there's an assumption here among this, the people of this crowd. And it's an assumption that isn't really that far from us. It's, a, it's kind of a, a way of thinking, a way of seeing the world. And that is this. Those Galileans suffered God's judgment because of sin. Pilate was a tool in the punishment of God. And that wasn't an uncommon way of thinking. And sometimes it creeps into our, even in this modern world, you know, beyond the Enlightenment, part of the modern world, even the postmodern world. But we're firmly entrenched in a more, you know, advanced way of looking at this world, figuring everything out, solving the great mysteries of life. We're not that silly, and yet sometimes it's true that kind of creeps into our thinking too. When people are suffering, we think God's at work. God's bringing that to pass. That great penalty. You hear it from time to time. Great tragedies, great, great sources of suffering. And by the same token, sometimes we think, well, when everything's going well, God's just tickled with me. He's pleased. He's favoring me. He's advancing my success. He's advancing my progress. I'm getting ahead in this world because God's on my side. That wasn't an uncommon way of thinking. And they thought suffering the evidence of wrongdoing and success the evidence of doing what's right. 
In the Old Testament, Job suffered precious loss of family, property, even lost his health. His friends came to him. They cared about him. He was in devastating grief. They spoke to him about his need. They spoke to him about his suffering. And in their eyes, Job had sinned. Job had committed evil. Job had done wrong and God was punishing him. Chapters 3 to 28 in the book of Job are the discourses, the conversations back and forth between Job and his friends. They're trying to draw him back to the Lord and to the right side of things. It's in the Old Testament, but it's also in the New. Jesus and his disciples happen upon a blind man. The disciples say, who sinned, Jesus, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither the man nor his parents. His blindness isn't a testimony to sin. The man in his blindness is, however, an occasion to witness the work of God. We live in a broken world that is riddled with sin. If you think of cancer and how it it sneaks up, gets into toxic poisons, devastates, destroys and kills, think of sin as as a cancer that has gotten into this world. It's riddled. It's into the liver. It's into the bloodstream. It's into the stomach. It's into the heart. It's into the brain. It's sick. It's not healthy. Suffering is a part of the warp and woof of this world and life as we know it. But Jesus says it's an occasion. All life is an occasion to experience, to witness the testimony of God's action and work. This interruption... This kind of strange fact, right in the middle of what Jesus is challenging his hearers to do, is saying, they suffered God's judgment, didn't they? We're tracking with you, Jesus. We understand what you're talking about. We see God at work in this world. It's happening over there. His judgment is taking place there. I don't know if that's exactly it, but I would... I would look to what Jesus says. Obviously, it was something along along that line because Jesus refutes it, refutes the unexpressed question or statement, I mean, the statement of the heart, the statement of their thinking. And he says, do you think they're worse sinners than the other Galileans? He says, let me add an incident to your incident. In Jerusalem, at the Pool of Siloam, a tower collapsed, crushing 18 people. Do you think they were worse sinners than all those in Jerusalem? Do you think God singled them out for their sin? He's not saying some were sinners and some weren't. They're all sinners. He's saying, do you think 
Those who were slain while they were observing Passover, do you think those who were crushed by falling rock were worse sinners? I think Jesus is saying, no, you're not tracking with me. You're not getting what I'm saying. You're missing my point altogether. I'm talking about all of you. I'm not excluding anyone. There's no person, no person that is an exception to the call of repentance. And he says, in fact, if you don't repent, you'll perish too. There's no calculations involved. We all need to turn to God. God is acting now. You remember what characterized Jesus' ministry when he started? And it is characteristic of all of his teaching, all of his parables. His whole ministry can be fitted into this thing. The time is now. God's kingdom is here. Repent and believe God's good news. That's powerful stuff. And this fits right in with what he's saying. So he tells them a story. And he says, there was this landowner. He called his caretaker over. He said, see this fig tree? I've been, coming out, I've been coming out here looking for fruit for three years. Now, you have to understand, it didn't just pop up and start bearing fruit. That fig tree's been around a long time. But now it should have been bearing fruit for these three years. And he says, it's barren. It's dead. You know, it's not going to bear fruit. Cut it down. This soil, this soil right here that this tree is standing on is valuable. We can put it to good use. Let's cut it down. And the caretaker says, let's wait one year. Let me dig around it. Let me, let me fertilize it. It may bear fruit. And if it does, that's, that's even better. We won't have to replace it. We won't have to wait for anything else to grow. It'll be good to go. That will be good. And if it doesn't, we can cut it down. And that's where it ends. In the history of interpretation, you know, I mean, if we look at all the different viewpoints of interpretation, there have been people who say, well, the caretaker is, the hev- is our heavenly father. I mean, the, uh, the landowner, the caretaker is Jesus. Uh, they break down into allegory all the different pieces. I'm going to tell you what is a very Jewish way of understanding this parable. The caretaker and the landowner represent the counsel of God. And we're to see that in God's counsel, there's reason for judgment. But His grace postpones His judgment. His grace says, I'm going to push back. I'm going to hold off what we've got coming. What what is fair, what any good landowner would do. I'm going to hold off 
because of my grace. Judgment and grace are as real in our lives as they are in the counsel of God. And grace wins. Grace triumphs. And Jesus is saying, we're in this time of grace. That's why he tells this parable on the tale of these examples and the call, the beckon, the wooing to turn. So this morning I was thinking, that really does fit us. Because sometimes we think, we think repentance is for those other people. I mean, repentance is for, like, black tux affairs, uh, formal dress affairs. Uh, Repentance is for major holidays, national holidays. Repentance is for big things, not everyday kind of things. In fact, in this situation, if, I, if I'm understanding this right, this, uh, this statement, which kind of carried a declaration, we've got it, Jesus, we know what you're talking about, we see what God's doing, and Jesus is saying, wait, <laughs> you're excluding yourself. You're thinking because God's judgment has come on you that he doesn't want to be doing something in your life because you think if God was dealing with you, then you'd be suffering or you'd be facing this or that. And Jesus is saying, this is for you, brother, sister. And that's why I want us to bring back repentance I don't want repentance to just be for special occasions, those major, major things. I want it to be for every day. We as followers of Jesus, sometimes we think, well, I did that back uh, in the year 1972. I repented on a canal bank by myself in the dark. I turned to God. And I turned from the things that had a hold of me. And that began. That's, and, and, and I've been going ever since. And you know where I am today? I'm right here. This is where I've ended up. This is where repentance brought me back then. But you know what? It has been daily repentance. And I think that's really what we can draw from this. Otherwise, this would be for somebody else. It wouldn't be for us at all. And I want us this morning to appreciate the role of repentance. I want us to bring back repentance. I want us to get back to repentance. I want us every day to repent more than you would think. Because repentance is just that way. We think of it as, you know, kind of a a diamond-studded, gold-braided word that belongs in a cathedral or the church, but it, belie- it really belongs in work clothes in our lives every day because it's all about turning to God. It's not for others, and it's all about grace. And that's what God is doing in our lives. It's really about turning to God. The word In the New Testament, it means to change your mind. It literally means that, change your mind. 
But in the Old Testament, the word is more picturesque. It means to turn around. To turn around. And many times, it even carried the idea of come home. Come back. Come back. And boy, I I resonate with that. Because in our real spiritual life, not just as we are when we're dressed up on Sundays or back when we you know, made that big decision, kind of like when we got married, that big event stuff, but in our day-to-day lives, little decisions, little occasions in which we turn away. See, faith is... Well, there's a lot that we could say about faith, but there's nothing magical and or, or altogether mystical about it. it. It's about often little choices we make. And the things that aren't of faith are those little human choices that we constantly make. And those little choices take us somewhere. They can sometimes take us away from the Lord, draw us away from the Lord. And in the process, and the Bible talks about this, our hearts can grow cold toward God. Or they'll say, return to your first love. And that's something we, we know about. We have these seasons, or we've had these wanderings in our Christian experience and life. So we, we can resonate with this. And what I'm saying is, is that Repentance, this idea of turning to God, sometimes involves turning away, turning back, going home. But throughout the day, there's a struggle going on, a struggle for our heart in Jesus Christ. Paul talked about that a lot. This is not, I'm not making this up. I'm not just. Paul talked about the battle of our Christian lives when he talked about the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is me. And the spirit is God who has entered my life, your life too. When Jesus, after the cross, was raised from the dead... He ascended to the Father and he poured out the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And that is what created the church, Acts 2, and it creates you and me in Christ through faith. And that Spirit resides within us. It's real. It's God's power, his presence. And do you know what the Spirit does? The Spirit nudges. Yeah, it nudges. It prods. It kind of kicks you under the dinner table. It acts just like your spouse, your husband or wife. It pleads with us. It urges us. It it woos us. It teaches us. It reminds us. Sometimes it's like a slap that wakes us up to the reality of Who we are, who God is, and what he's doing in our lives. And Paul says, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, he says, Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. There's a decision there. There's a turning there. You might be wallowing in the flesh. 
And the Spirit's saying, turn, turn, set your mind on me, set your mind on these things, what's good and pure and holy and righteous and forgiveness and love and grace and mercy and kindness and set your mind on these things. That's repentance. That's a turning. That's a change of mind. And you see, it's it's built right in to the Christian life. It's, it's part of the Christian life. Paul uses another illustration of the Spirit in our life. He talks about walking in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. And he says, walk after the Spirit. Well, why do you have to be told to walk after the Spirit? Because we're walking after celebrities and wealth and all these other things in life. Everybody's just like a, you know, wooing us. Like the strange women in the book of Proverbs who are by the road saying, come over here. I've got something for you. This is where true happiness is. This is where the real quality and virtue and enjoyment of life is. Come come with me. I'll take you there. I'll take you by the hand. And you walk after it. And that's what we're doing each and every day. We're letting the television talk to us. We're letting the radio or the iPhone or we're letting all kinds of things tell us where to walk, how to go, and how to get there. And the Spirit's saying, walk after me. Walk after me. Walk after me. Or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, don't be inebriated with wine. Be inebriated with the Spirit. Actually, he says, be filled with the Spirit. When you're inebriated, you're under the influence. And there are all kinds of things in our lives that want to exercise influence in our lives. And the Holy Spirit's going to say, come back. Turn around. Come home. Come back to the Lord. Find your fulfillment. Ratify. Affirm again. Realize the truth. And hold on to it in me. Well, repentance is turning to God. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, You turned to God from idols. That is the actual emphasis in wording order. Sometimes they'll say, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned to God. That is the power. Without God as the focus, then reform, you know, reform is always a feature of repentance. Whenever you hear the word repentance, you're talking about turning and reforming. But reform is a human endeavor, and we know that that fails unless you turn to God. That's the difference. That's what the prodigal son did. With God, repentance is positive. It's turning to God, but it's, it's not just about others. It's about us, as I've already made us clear. But, but I want us to emphasize, I want to emphasize just a moment the seriousness of sin. I don't think we have a clear doctrine, or sometimes we forget how serious sin is, and we need to sharpen our theology of sin. I just want to share a few quick things to refresh us about how sinister And deep runs the role and power 
and deception of sin. G.K. Chesterton, some of you are familiar with him, he influenced C.S. Lewis, which gives you a little sense of who he was. He wrote biographies, one on uh, St. Thomas and, and one of, on St. Francis, which I happen to have, and they're pretty thick and they're incredible. I mean, even the other experts on Thomas and Thomas Aquinas and St. Francis talk about how significant are his biographies. And he wrote them almost just out of his head from his experience and his heart at a, in a six-week span of time. Can you imagine that? Brilliant, brilliant man. You can read him. He's available. Read it, for example, his orthodoxy. He's great sense of humor. Very funny man. Brilliant. Chesterton, we know, responded to an essay contest in the London Times. And the London Times said, if you'd like to write an essay, we'll hold this contest, and here's the topic. We'd like to hear from you, and we'll weigh and determine whose is the best. Send in your essay on this topic. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton sent in his essay, two words, I am. Evil isn't out there. That's what they were saying. And Jesus said, no, no, no. <laughs> no. It's not over there. It's not out there. It's right here. T.S. Eliot spoke of sin as a serpent coiled in the pit of the human heart, and no one is immune to its venom. Fyodor Dostoevsky, his writings showed the internality, the, the inner life of a person. And it's said that Freud couldn't read Theodore Dostoevsky's works because the characters were too close to those of his own in psychoanalysis. In fact, his writings helped turn around, turn around liberalism that, that said, we're just getting better and better every day, and as, as the world marches on, we're, just, we're walking to utopia. And then the First World War hit, and then the Second World War and people were looking for answers. We can't figure out what's really wrong. And that's part of the reason that I am so committed to Christianity, so committed to Christ. Not only does it have the answer for my deepest needs and the highest and most magnificent identification with the God of this universe and Jesus Christ, but it names and addresses sin. Who else is doing that? You'll never figure out this world. You'll never figure out yourself if you don't get a grip on the depth of sin. And this Bible is all about it. Morley Safer, and I wrote this down, well, let me, I'll put that off for just a moment. Paul, and the Apostle Paul had a lot to say about sin. He said law, law exposes it. 
It excites it. It doesn't create it. Law can't contain sin. Law cannot name all sin. But law exposes it. It makes us aware of it. It flushes it out. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, Paul talked about sin in terms of human anatomy. As though it's, it's in our bloodstream, in our body. He talked about it in terms of the tongue, the mouth, the neck, the throat. In Romans 7, he said, sin is irrational. We want, we want it to play by the rules. We want to be able to diagnose it, to have a label for every facet of it so that we can say what it is, so that we can tame it and control it. It's irrational. And in that sense, Paul said, "Power, sin is a power. He says, I want to do what's right, but I can't do what's right. I try to avoid what's wrong, and I do it. I can't figure myself out. That's the irrationality of sin. He has sin lists. Lists of sins in Romans 1, Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 3, Titus 3. Lists of sins, a concatenation, it's like a train, a big freight train of sins, like boxcars. Lists. And I look at that, that list and I say, that's not me. I could never do that. I'm, I'm boy, compared, to, there's about nine boxcars that I could just take off and throw off the tracks right now. And that's not understanding the depth of sin and that if you and I taken out of our situation... Look at what happens sometimes to men after six months, nine months, when they can't find a job and what some people do. Or how some people are, I'm not going to take the time to illustrate all the ways, but morally safer in a 60-minute segment. And I wrote this down because it was so striking. And this was said in September 29, 1996. It was on the Bosnia-Serbian conflict. And they were featuring Disko Tadic, who was a, a war criminal. And just horrible, horrible things. So horrible, in fact, that Miroslav Volf, who said he couldn't believe in a God of judgment, when this stuff hit Yugoslavia, his village, his hometown, his family, he said, I can't believe in a God who isn't full of wrath. His love must oppose. His love must hate such evil. And Morley Safer said, Morley Safer said, he spoke of the banality of evil. I had to double check banality. Banality means ordinary. What? Banality means commonplace. And then he said this, the most ordinary among us, given the right circumstances, are able to commit the most heinous acts of horror. Tadich is nothing special. 
This is close to home and I think it will illustrate the depth of sin. Donald Miller in his book, Blue Like Jazz, talks about an occasion when he's talking to a friend over coffee. He says, I know someone who's twice cheated on his wife, although I don't know her. He told me this over coffee because I was telling him how I thought. Perhaps man was broken. How for man, doing good and moral things was like swimming upstream. And he wondered if God had mysteriously told me about his infidelity. He squirmed a bit and then he spoke to me as if I were a priest. He confessed everything. I told him I was sorry. That it was terrible. And it did sound terrible. His body was convulsed in guilt and self-hatred. He said he would lie down next to his wife at night, feeling walls of concrete between their hearts. He had secrets. She tries to love him, but he knows he doesn't deserve it. He cannot accept her affection because she is loving a man who doesn't exist. He plays a role. He says he's an actor in his own home. That's what sin does. Scott Peck said, the central defect of evil is not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. But there is something more, and it's the object of what Jesus told in this simple story. There's grace. There's a God who loves you in his patience. You've got to understand this. In his patience, he goes to great lengths to change things. He digs around the root. And he fertilizes. It's a simple story, but it's a profound, it's a daring truth. God has a purpose for you. He wants you to flourish. He wants there to be delicious, luscious fruit in your life. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to become more than you are. In fact, Leonard Sweet said, I need a Savior to save me from myself. So I can be myself and be more than myself. That's what I am in Christ. And that's what you are too. You're becoming Christ-like. That's his purpose. That's his objective. That's his goal. That's his grace at work. That's his love digging around the root ball of your base and fertilizing That's his love and his grace saying no, no judgment, no condemnation, not until I've done everything I can. This is the opportunity. This is the day, this moment, not out there, not over there. Right now. Max Lucado, let me just share this uh, 
I, I wanted to share it the way he does, because if you've read any of Max Lucado's stuff, then you know he's, he's a wonderful writer. So, but I'll just, you have to put up with me, because I'm trying to save time. I've gone a little long. He has a dog named Molly, and he loves Molly. I mean, you know what dogs are like. Uh, they're no enemies, right? Molly, Molly is so friendly, rolls on the grass, uh, licks your hand, just a, got a great personality, great attitude. But he says, Molly is a dog, and dogs do things, and I'd like to change those things, you know? Dog, the dog nature, he says, because there are things about dogs that are just unpresentable. So he says, I've got this idea. Um, you know, his name is Max. He says, I'm going to just drop a Max gene into Molly. And I'm going to let that gene transform the, the very nature of Molly. So she'll be everything that she can be. And I'll refine because obedience school just won't do the job. And then, of course, he's in a conversation with us. And he says, oh, you don't think that idea will work? You don't think my idea will work? Well, it's really not my idea at all. It's God's idea. You see, that's what God has done in the Holy Spirit. He's poured out His Spirit on your life. He's taken that heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh. He's written His law on our heart. God wants to do a great work in your life. So, let's repent. Not just on special occasions, not just back when we married the Lord, each and every day. Will you stand with me? Let me pray for us. I want to remind you as I pray that, you know, the Spirit, He's at work. And maybe He's spoken to you. If you'd like to pray with me, the pastoral staff, elders, and or their wives, we invite you to come. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work of your spirit. Thank you for your grace, your goodness. And may we see you so clearly that uh, there's just nothing in competition with your place and priority in our lives, your good plan and purpose for us. We praise and thank you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.